Welcome to Spirit in Action. My name is Mark Helpsmeet, and each week we bring you visits and conversations with people doing healing work for this world, hearing what they're doing and what inspires them and supports them in doing it. Welcome to Spirit in Action. Two great guests here today for Spirit in Action, great thinkers mapping a better future for us all by looking deep within, not only the human mind, but the mind of the earth and cosmos. Three years ago, I interviewed Jeremy Lent about his book, The Patterning Instinct, A Cultural History of Humanity's Search for Meaning, and two years ago, I interviewed Martin Shainhals about his book, Work, Love, and Learning in Utopia. I want to include as much as I can into the Spirit in Action broadcast, so I'm going directly to Zoom to join Jeremy Lent, writer and integrator in Berkeley, California, and Martin Shainhals, writer and professor of anthropology at Appalachian State University. Jeremy, how wonderful it is to have you back today for Spirit in Action. I'm so thrilled to be part of this conversation, Mark. Thank you. And it's the first time we get to see each other face to face. And same for you, Marty. How wonderful to have you here. It's great to be here, Mark. And just to be clear, Marty, you're sitting in North Carolina right now. Jeremy's over in Berkeley, California area. And I'm in the best place. Of course, I'm in Eau Claire, Wisconsin. And I'm bringing you together, as I just explained to folks, because your ideas, your deep thinking, your reflection on the well-being of the world, when I interviewed you back in 2018, 2019, struck me that this was a conversation where we could wrestle out a new depth. And so I really appreciate that we finally brought all three of us here together for this. Marty, your book had to do with utopia reimagining equality. The big picture was utopia. It isn't quite that crisp from my point of view with you, Jeremy. What would you say was the big idea, the big objective that we're aiming for in your books, including the one that's just coming out, The Web of Meaning? I would say really shifting our dominant worldview from one of separation to one of interconnectedness would be the key theme. Marty, in your book, one of the things that you indicated was a very important measure of how we're proceeding well or not. It was joy and happiness. Mm -hmm. So talk to why joy and happiness is the measure as opposed to GDP or something else. (laughs) Well, for me, of course, I want to get away from measures like only GDP. And fortunately, economists have moved away to a certain extent and added things into GDP like health, longevity. But I think if you don't attend to the most basic sorts of things, how people are feeling, you don't really have a genuine measure of a society's well-being. Joy and pleasure, pleasure especially is a stigmatized word in the Anglo-American world because of the Puritanism of the tradition, especially in America, but it shouldn't be. Pleasure and joy are things we all know that we want, and that's why I make it a prime measure. What about you, Jeremy? What would you measure with? You know, this whole question of human happiness or well-being is one that I also explore in some detail in this new book, The Web of Meaning. 
One of the things I look at quite closely is the Aristotelian concept contrasting hedonia with eudaimonia. These are two terms from Aristotle, where hedonia refers to not just hedonism, the way that we think of it as in modern terminology, but really the whole set of pleasures and good things that temporarily improve our sense of contentment or whatever, but don't really last. So, or it could be things like status or just feeling satisfied about a accomplishing something, all kinds of positive things. But what eudaimonia refers to in Aristotle's terms is the sense of really fulfilling your true purpose in life. That I've seen a lot of modern thinking in modern psychology relates to this, to this concept of sort of sustained or sustainable well-being, which I also then relates to the Buddhist terms of dukkha on the one hand and what they call sukha on the other hand, which I'll be happy to explore more. But it, there's a certain parallel between sukha in Buddhist terms, which looks again at more of a sustained well-being through the entire field of consciousness versus the kind of short-term desires which lead to dukkha or kind of suffering. Because as soon as you get one there, you want the next one right away. So yeah, I, I'm curious, Marty, when you talk about happiness how you relate to some of those contrasts I'm just putting up there. I'm glad you mentioned the uh, Buddhist concepts and other concepts too, because we often assume superficially that things like money and status can make us happy. And one of the things that I wanted to show in my book was that happiness or the sense of well-being is illusory. I wanted as well to look at and do look at the evolution of the emotions and the way that the negative emotions, sadness, anger, fear, are connected to dominance hierarchies. What that means is that we know, of course, that someone who is poor and on the bottom is not going to be happy, but someone who is high status biologically may feel something more akin to sometimes an addiction. In other words, they want money and they want power, but it's not satisfying. And it, it turns out if you actually look at animals, so I'm kind of slightly different in the starting perspective that I take, although I may come back to Buddhism, but animals, including humans, often feel, those who are higher status often feel increased stress compared to their subordinate animals. What that means is that money and status, although they may be things that we think that we want, and this is where Buddhism comes in, they're, they're often a real source of unhappiness and alienation. Yeah, and it's interesting to hear you describe that. I'd love to hear more about the research that shows what you say that correlates the increased status with the stress. Because in my research, I've come across both, I guess I'm thinking about a book by this really amazing biologist, Robert Sapolsky, who studied a lot of primates. He's also a great neuroscientist. And so he wrote this book called Behave, which is like this 800-page masterpiece. But he correlates a lot reduced hierarchy with higher levels of cortisol. 
And I've seen that talked about also in another book that you might relate to in your own work. It's a book about the effects of inequality on well-being called The Spirit Level by Kate Pickett and Richard Wilkinson, which shows quite definitively how looking at societies across the world, how those that are more hierarchical, more unequal, correlate with much lower well-being, not just for the poorer people, but for everyone in the society. But it also talks a lot about some studies showing how lower status in an organization has been determined to show actually higher levels of cortisol and higher degrees of physical sickness. Um, so I'd, yeah, I'd be very interested to hear another perspective on that about how high status can also cause difficulties. Right. I'll give you one example. Um you know, of course, in India, they have a caste system. The American system of race, pre-civil rights, was very much like a caste system. In fact, that word was used in the 19th century, caste, to describe blacks and whites. In a caste system, and there are other places in the world where there is caste, in a caste system, the person of higher status is at greater risk than the person of lower status. This isn't by any means, I don't want to minimize the pain caused by people who are of lower status in a caste system. But in India, for example, the Brahmins are at risk of being polluted, spiritually polluted, by contact with lower caste peoples. And there are all kinds of things in caste systems in which the higher person is the one at risk. So humans kind of have taken what I described for animals and formalized it in cultural terms in many systems in which we make the person of higher status the one who's vulnerable. Back at the beginning, I said your measure was going to be joy-pleasure. That's the primary measure. You didn't say it, I think, explicitly, but I wondered if it was only the joy and pleasure of human beings that was going to be measured on that balance, because we've got a lot of other species and we affect a lot of them. We do, yes. And I wouldn't limit it to joy and pleasure of just humans, but all you have to do is look around at how happy people are in interacting with and playing with their dog or their cat to realize the interspecies importance of play, compassion, plain compassion. And I should say, when I talk about joy and pleasure, pleasure especially has a kind of selfish connotation. But really, if you look at the evolutionary heritage of the emotions, it's very hard to really know. But I make a pretty strong case drawing on other people's work that happiness evolved in mammals, of course, to reinforce nurture and the desire to nurture, especially parents nurturing their offspring and offspring being nurtured. And that generalized in humans to joy and pleasure from nurturing others and nurturing cross species as well. So I'm introducing the idea that pleasure doesn't mean just self-pleasure, but we have the capacity, almost unique among animals, of feeling compassion and feeling compassion and sympathy, feeling good when others around us are feeling good and especially feeling good because of what we do to and for them, both humans and animals, non-human animals.
I'm not sure how much I believe anymore. I think at one point in my life, I would have believed that we had a special ability in terms of empathy. Of course, most of us have experienced a dog who knew we were sad and the dog comes and tries to nurture us. But I've seen, so now because of YouTube, I've seen too many videos where cross species, all kinds of animals caring for and showing what looks to me like empathy. Of course, I'm maybe anthropomorphizing it myself. Jeremy, I was specifically wondering about, we're talking about, you know, 95% of human history how people thought, how they organized, how they lived. And, you know, we've only had the iPhone around for whatever, 20 years or less. And I think it's changed our brains horrendously. So I'm wondering if we're a victim of our thoughts, if our brains are actually different so that the measures that we used to use for what was going to make us pleasure, happy, successful, utopia, integration, whether that's changed because of the electronic world that we've moved into specifically. You know, I think it is changing. And I think it's changing in a very negative way in terms of human well-being. Honestly, this is really not just kind of happenstance. It's actually as a result of the intentions of those who develop these technologies, specifically because if we go back to what we were talking about earlier, that sense of this distinction between like a true happiness and the short-term happiness, what we have to recognize is that our modern consumer society has actually been developed to maintain people in that place of needing to get that next fix, that next happy fix as much as possible, because that's the way they become consumers who spend more money on whatever it is, whether it's the next food item or status item. In each case, advertising, um, our whole consumer mindset has been developed to get people to feel insecure, want more, buy more, and hope that they'll gain happiness as a result of that. And what we see with the smartphone technology is this level, the sophistication and the power of these technologies to invade our very internal being has just amplified to a massive extent. Because now they actually have psychology labs in Silicon Valley where they teach programmers how to essentially manipulate the hormones of users so that they get just enough of a positive dopamine fix when they see a like button come up on their smartphone or whatever. Or so they, it, it actually addicts them so that then they need to go back again just a few minutes later to try to get that next positive fix. And the idea is to give just enough to satisfy them for a few minutes, but not enough to really get them feeling fulfilled so they can just put their iPhone away for a few hours. This is the cynical, um, incredibly sophisticated way in which these tech companies are developing their technologies to reach inside to our very nervous systems and a very sort of embodied creation of our hormonal systems within us to turn us into really almost like automatons, if you will, to keep their profits as great as possible. And I think that, as I said, this is not an acting like this, but it's actually fragmenting our consciousness and designed to stop people from ever having enough time and space to really start to think about how they might be better off without these technologies around them. Yeah, and I will add to that from the position of working with young people as a professor, the effect of smartphones 
on their lives is something students love to talk about. And even though they spend hours on the cell phone, something that I've seen as a big change from the past, don't talk to each other in the classroom, but are scrolling through their phones when I walk into the classroom, which is really rather disconcerting that they're not getting to know each other. They're doing whatever they're doing on their phones. They use them all the time, but so many students will recognize the negative effects of smartphones on their own well-being. They'll talk about their own loneliness and alienation. They'll talk about the kind of inauthenticity of relationships that come from phones. I teach a class on cross-cultural romance, and students will often talk about the way that People put up images of their own relationships on the social media sites that portray their relationships as being really good. And they often will say that they are doing that as a kind of pose when, in fact, they know each other's relationships often are problematic. And to my mind, it's not just the falsity of doing that that's problematic. It's also that it doesn't allow us to relate to each other in a human and humane way and to learn from each other's relationships. So I'm talking about romantic relationships in particular, you know, there's alienation and a kind of insincerity that's very strong. Age-wise, I'm not a big user of the smartphone, so I don't want to play the old guy who says that we should get rid of them. However, from the greatest users of them, young people, there's quite a critique. I'm sure you probably both have heard of psychologists talking about, even before COVID, a big, big increase in anxiety and depression among young people. And I think it's widely surmised and rightly so that that may very well be because of the kind of isolation that happens with social media and smartphones. Folks, today for Spirit in Action, we're speaking with Marty Shanehals. Martin Shanehals is how you'll find him on his books, including Work, Love, and Learning in Utopia, Equality, Reimagined. And our other guest is Jeremy Lent. I interviewed him back in 2018 about his book, The Patterning Instinct, A Cultural History of Humanity's Search for Meaning. And his more recent book, which I'll be interviewing him about in maybe a month down the road, is The Web of Meaning, Integrating Science and Traditional Wisdom. And also, you should read this novel, Requiem of the Human Soul. But in any case, they're both here today for Spirit in Action. I've got links to websites and emails, so you can get a hold of both of them. Jeremy Lent's very easy, jeremylent.com. And I've got two other sites linked. And if you want to get a hold of Martin Shanehals, I've got his email on the site, MDS. Those are his initials. I understand the D is for Donald. MDS, New York at gmail.com. And that New York should not deceive you. He's actually living in North Carolina right now. And last semester, he was down in Florida, whereas Jeremy Lent is joining us from over in Berkeley, California. On NordenSpiritRadio.org, you'll find links to all of our guests of the past 16 years. You'll find the stations, some 42 of them across the entire nation who carry our programs. Many people just listen directly online via podcast. All of it's available and linked on our site, and please post comments. 
as we were just talking about people isolating via their phones, for me, it's so important to have two-way communication. And so please do post comments when you come. There's also a donate button. That's how we finance this. It's not via corporations who do not have all of the same interests that the average people have. And it's not from government either. It's from you, the listeners who support Northern Spirit Radio. Support us when you come and especially support your local community radio station and other local media. But what I wanted to ask you about, Jeremy, right away, because you were talking about how psychologists and how in Silicon Valley, they're carefully tuning the machines to produce an amount of feedback to addict people. And my perspective had been, long before phones, is that there has been a rise in the depredations to human society from drug use. Drugs have been around forever, certainly in form of alcohol and other forms, but I think something has happened in our society that has made addiction a bigger threat to the society as a whole. At one point, I decided that it was just being too rich because when I lived as a Peace Corps volunteer in West Africa, there were some drunks, there were people who had addictions, but mostly people didn't deal with that. But I'm thinking more and more that our society is training us to be unhealthy that way. What's your perspective, Jeremy? I think that's completely true. And I think that this ultimately is the result of this worldview of separation that is underlying the very sort of makeup of our society and the way in which that is expressed through this absolute domination of consumerism and a system of capitalism, which is really driven ultimately by corporations wanting to increase their profits as fast as possible. They use the media and they use all the their um, different forms of communicating with people in order to really encourage that sense of dissatisfaction So it's really, again, no surprise that that leads to increased addiction. What they're really doing is by taking away, by fragmenting people's sense of well-being, people are drawn, they they feel a sense of what the Buddhists call dukkha, a sense of suffering and a sense of alienation. And they're drawn to whatever they can find access to, which can at least temporarily help them. But because our society has taken away the more benevolent, sustainable, natural ways to find well-being, which would arise from things like real connection with family, real connection with community, purposive work, work that is really meaningful, and a sense of connecting with the wider world and being connected with a natural world. All those elements of connection have been essentially taken away by what our society offers people. So it is only to be expected that they'll turn to the short-term easiest ways of getting some kind of pleasure to at least temporarily paper over that sense of deep dissatisfaction. I like that question because I would add into a discussion of addiction that we should see money and power as being addicting substances. Not that desire for money is always an addiction, but if you see so many of the people, especially in America, who are not satisfied with a billion or two billion dollars, that's a classic addiction. It's the lack of satisfaction, no matter how much of the substance you procure. And the other point that goes with an addiction is that someone is willing to do almost anything and destroy themselves and those around them 
in order to get it. And, and we see that all the time with money and power. Pivoting just a minute, Jeremy mentioned work, and that's something I've thought a lot about. I want to advocate that we change the way that we both think about work and organize work as more and more paying work is being taken over by automation. And I should add in here that I grew up in Southeast Michigan and the Detroit suburbs. So I've seen the devastation that happens when so many people who had jobs lost them in the auto industry, partly to automation. And that, of course, is happening more and more. I think we're going to be left existing in a kind of fork in the road where either we have robots doing so much of the work and yet give people or don't give people the ability to buy things, or we move to a system in which there's some distribution or total distribution of the needs of subsistence to people regardless of their participation in formal work. And the reason that I'm putting that out as being important is because that then radically changes the way that we think about work and also the way that we think about school, which often follows the way we think about work, to be something that is not obligatory, not compulsory due to the terroristic need to avoid starvation and not putting us in a kind of hierarchy in which someone else controls our ability to live or die, but rather something that returns to the way that work and creativity should exist, which is something that is joyful and pleasurable rather than compulsory and terrorizing. I think you raise an incredibly important point there, Marty. And I agree with you very strongly that we need to transform the way that we look at work if we're ever to shift back towards a society of true well-being. And I'm quite encouraged by an increasing amount of conversation going on around this concept of what's known as universal basic income. Mm -hmm which is a quite a radical idea in some ways, because it says rather than think of things like welfare or whatever, like that you give money, the state gives money to people if they're out of work, as long as they show they're trying to find the other work or, or whatever it might be. Universal basic income says something radically different. It says that every person, by simply by virtue of being alive, has a right to enough of a basic income that gives them the basics they need for life, enough that would give them money for a place to live, enough food to eat, for security, for access to healthcare, and so that then work no longer becomes something you have to do just in order to survive. But it gets to be something that you actually choose to do Sometimes people might choose to do it because they want to earn more money because they want to save up for something more, which is totally appropriate. Or they might say, well, actually, I just need those basics and now I can spend my time. Um, it could be um, actually being part of the nurturing element of human society that is left outside of our money economy right now. It could be looking after a loved one who is elder and really giving full-time attention to them. Or it could be growing vegetables in your garden and sharing them with your friends because now you don't need to make the money in order to survive or whatever. And it could also be things like artistic projects or being engaged in things around the community to build community. But it would totally transform both the individual well-being as well as the as societal well-being. And what people have shown is that 
really counterintuitively, or at least counter these preconceptions of our mainstream worldview, when people get a universal basic income, they don't work less. Actually, they tend to work at the same or a little bit more, and they tend to choose to work in areas that are more productive for society as a whole. Absolutely. I am a big believer in a universal basic income and it's something can amount to it for Wow, that's uh, great. An important mm. part of my utopia. So absolutely. And I'm a believer in it in part because my leading, the thing that called me to do Northern Spirit Radio was not obviously to get rich. And as a matter of fact, my wife subsidized me for several years and we have enough income now. So I get to get paid the princely sum of $600 a month since we own our house and she still has income. This, this can work out, but I think I'm doing that thing already. And because of that, I love coming to work each day and I work out an awful lot of hours. And I think probably the both of you are motivated in that way. I mean, I don't know for sure, Marty, as a professor of anthropology, maybe you'd spend less time with students or maybe that's exactly what rewards that sweet spot in you. Yeah. How's that work for you? That's exactly right. I'm not doing it for the money, of course, and doing it for the real passion. And it's hard to live in a world that doesn't recognize the contribution contributions that people like you make, Mark, I mean, doesn't recognize with monetary accolades. Of course, you're well recognized in other ways. But, you know, there are so many things that people do as volunteers. And as Jeremy said, in the caretaking professions or caretaking work that isn't paid, and yet that's extremely valuable. And the things that are just paid money are not always the most valuable. And yet we don't pay activities, child raising, you know, by parents. And we, in a certain sense, demean it by saying it's not going to be paid because, and I know it's a little bit controversial to suggest that it be paid. I'm not necessarily saying that, but by creating a realm of activity that's paid and paid well and that which is not paid, we've artificially denigrated so much of what people do out of a real sense of passion and devotion. And that's fully wrong. And I think we we know that, too. I mean, I know so many people who are great artistically, not earning money from their art or their music, and yet loving it. And it would be so nice, in my mind, if people had enough subsistence so that they could follow their passions and follow their hearts and do what's meaningful to them and to other people. I think a good economy is not one that produces a lot of GDP, but one that connects people who are doing something meaningful with an audience rather than with consumers. I'm a musician, so I use a performative metaphor. But as a musician, I know that when you're playing for other people, for both your enjoyment and their enjoyment, it's kind of the ultimate metaphor for how humans interact. And if you don't have that audience and that connection, which so many people don't, then you are lacking the ability to create in a way that is meaningful. And um, we've sort of come back to, again, this notion of the wrongness of GDP as a measurement of a, of a success in our society. And I'd 
love to explore that just a little bit more with you, because I feel, again, strongly in, in full agreement with you that how mistaken that is. And for any listeners who, for whom this feels like a, a sort of a new concept, the important thing to understand about GDP is that it doesn't actually measure anything other than the rate at which activities and the natural world are pulled into, are subsumed into the monetary economy. It doesn't, it's not actually a measure of good at all. Like, so if there's an oil spill and then you have to spend billions of dollars cleaning it up, that's actually great for GDP. That shows a big increase in GDP because of the cleanup. And then if people get sick from the oil spill and then they have to undergo years of medical intervention to deal with their illnesses, that's also good for GDP. So GDP has got nothing to do with the increase in well-being of a society, simply the rate at which society is monetized. And I'd love to hear, I understand, Marty, that you explore in, in the book different ways of measuring real happiness in, in a society. And it would be great to just explore that a little bit. Sure. Thanks for asking. I love the oil spill. That oil spill is adding to GDP. You're right. I mean, that's a great critique of GDP. And as an anthropologist, I can't help but giving an anthropological intervention here I remember being in a village a little over 10 years ago in China. This man said to me, look at my house. And he told me that the way that he had built it was with reciprocal labor. There was a pattern in his village going back about the 2000 to the turn of the century in which people would help each other build houses. There was no money that was exchanged. It was just reciprocal labor. So, of course, it's not measured by GDP. He had a, a nice house. And I asked him if in China's current supposedly wealthy state, he could build a house like that today. And he said, no, I couldn't build it today. We no longer have a tradition of reciprocal labor and reciprocal help. And it's become too expensive to go out into the market and pay people to come in and buy a house. So to my mind, that's a great example of how GDP mismeasures things that conventionally are wanted by people, things like houses. And to return to your question of what we should substitute it with, I really think that it's really intuitive to say that the enjoyment that people get from the activities needs to be included. Of course, the reason that it's not, in part, is because it's hard to measure. But because something is hard to measure and quantify is not a reason to exclude it. Today, we say if consumers are happy and if they're getting a lot of things from the economy, then that counts. But we totally discount the worker and the worker's happiness. And that's so wrong to my mind, because most of us spend so much time working and not necessarily consuming. Well, some people do, but in their small, limited free time. So I think that attention to the nature of work and what makes people happy at work and transforming not only so that people have the freedom to do what they want, but also to connect people with the audiences who can appreciate their creative endeavors. Abstract and large way of saying it, but it's important to say that as an important critical measure of well-being. We need to be happy at work and in our creative lives. 
you just mentioned something, Marty, that is important. And again, folks, we're speaking with Martin Shanehalls. He is professor of anthropology in North Carolina in Boone. And Jeremy Lent is an integrator. You need to learn about leology. And there's immense amount of depth. It's a fairly new concept for most people. But as an author and an integrator, he is doing important world-changing work. So one of the things you just mentioned, Marty, was time in China. This is something that's interesting about both of you, because I think there's a lot of people in the U.S. whose worldview is circumscribed by our country and by our culture here, and both of you extend well beyond it. Marty, China and India for you. Why don't you start off, Jeremy, and talk a little bit about the influence on your worldview from outside of the borders of the United States, besides the fact that you have this funny accent <laughs> that uh, is, I'm pretty sure it's not a Berkeley accent. That's right. Yeah. Well, in fact, I grew up in England, but I came to the States when I was 21 and has spent most of my life since then in the States. So somewhere along the line, my accent got sort of mashed up. So now people think I must be from New Zealand or somewhere, but that's the story behind it. But for me, yes, when I began a research project in my life about 15 years ago or so, um, trying to understand where different cultures made meaning out of the universe, and also trying to look at what science tells us about that. What I found so fascinating was that once we begin to move beyond this mainstream worldview of separation, we see that a lot of the earlier traditions, going all the way back to indigenous traditions, but then in China, you get both the Taoist traditions there, as well as Buddhist traditions that actually originated in India, but then became very developed in China over about a, a millennium or so. And these traditions all merged together in many ways, leading to a way of understanding the universe and humanity's place within it that is based a lot on the interconnections between humans, the rest of nature, or humans and society very different from this individualist libertarian way of understanding humanity and values that we see in the West. So this really has informed my work a lot, both the Buddhist, Taoist, as well as the tradition that's called Neo-Confucianism, which sounds very scholastic and sort of far away from whatever we do in the modern world, it was actually developed about a thousand years ago by a group of philosophers who actually integrated both the Buddhist and Taoist and Confucian ideas. But what's fascinating about these very ancient sounding ideas is that they are corroborated by what the most modern science tells us, sciences of complexity theory or modern systems biology or evolutionary biology or evolutionary anthropology. And they explain to us that actually these connections between things are oftentimes far more important and explanatory than the things themselves. And that's where I feel, based on what modern science leads us, we can actually learn a lot from these ancient traditions that can inform our modern understanding of the world. And I'm sure Marty's got the perfect reaction to that. <laughs> <laughs> Jeremy, I'm wondering, the idea of connection is great. I wonder if you could say more about that, because in reading your work, I like that idea and I would like to hear more. Well, I think probably the simplest way to understand it is 
if we look at what people take for granted in our modern worldview, it's essentially that everything is separate. And modern science tells us that actually this is the way you understand the universe. It's called reductionism, which is a very important part of science. And it sort of says that the way you really understand things is by breaking them down to their smallest parts. And that's the only way that you can really get what's going on. And that's true in biology or chemistry or physics. Reductionism has been a hugely valuable part of the last few hundred years in developing the technologies and the understanding of things like health, medicine, everything else that we get benefit from now. So I am certainly not in any way against reductionism as a very powerful mode of investigation. But because it's been so successful, a lot of scientists think that reductionism needs to tell us everything about the universe, that it can explain everything that there is. But what modern systems-oriented sciences show us, that these connections are actually more important to explain many things. So a simple way to get a sense of this is really simply, just think for a moment of a photograph of yourself when you were a little child. We all have one of those photographs in our, in our minds, right? And when you look at that photograph, you know that's yourself. But here's the thing. Every molecule in that little child is different from the molecules that are in you now. There's absolutely nothing in that child that is part of you. And yet you recognize this continuity. You might even remember the memories you had at that time or whatever. And it's the connections between those molecules that form the cells, the connections between the cells that maintain a stability that actually are your identity or who you actually are rather than the little things themselves. And that applies to all aspects of the world. And when you begin to look at that, and you begin to, what scientists have begun to recognize is there are principles around that, that then can be used to understand both human interaction as well as humans place within the universe. And this is where the traditional Chinese ideas from Neo-Confucianism are so incredibly valuable because they looked at the universe and they came up with a similar understanding. They saw the universe and everything in the universe as comprised of what they called qi, which we can translate simply as sort of energy and or matter, basically all the stuff uh, which we can think of in terms of molecules, energy, etc. But then they said, but it also consists of li. And li refers to the principles by which all of that stuff relates to each other to self-organize, to create everything that we actually experience in the world. So in a way, what modern sciences and complexity science and system thinking are exploring are quite simply the li that these Neo-Confucians discovered or described in the universe about a thousand years ago. And you might say, well, that's kind of neat, but so what? But the so what is that because these sages and thinkers spent so many generations trying to understand the human experience, human consciousness, and the way of relating to the natural world based on understanding the importance of Lee, many of their insights can inform our own understanding as we try to understand the world, the implications of these sciences of connectivity now. I can't help but jumping in here to make a quick comment and one that's affirming of what you were just saying, Jeremy. I yesterday had an appointment with a doctor who said, I don't have XYZ. And when I asked what I do have, he said, well, welcome to the world of subspecialty medicine. I don't know. And it's not really my responsibility. And I I think medicine, of course, is a very interesting place to look 
to, frankly, to criticize Western medicine and its specialization and its lack of attention to connections within the body. We know that we're organisms and have all kinds of interconnections, and yet people are into subspecialties that are often not determined by the nature of medicine, but determined by historical ways that things have been divided. And it's very detrimental to really well-being and to the learning. I think it's interesting to me, academics will often talk about the importance of interdisciplinary study and, and the right, but when they actually practice it, anyone who is too interdisciplinary often becomes suspect. Right. The specialist is the person who's held up as the person who knows everything, and that's not actually true. Exactly. There's one thing I wanted to jump in with, and this is a leftover from my conversation with you, Jeremy, three years ago. You do a very persuasive and thorough and well-documented reasoning about a number of things. And I asked you in that interview three years ago about evolution, and you do not like the description, I believe, of survival of the fittest, that kind of conceptualization. I understand some of the reasons why we don't want to go that way. Survival of the fittest, by the way, some people misinterpret as meaning the one who has the biggest hammer or whatever, that greatest strength. Sometimes we're most fit because we know how to work together or we know how to survive simply because we can stand being frozen for 25,000 years and we can still come alive. <laughs> right. So there's all kinds of fitness, I think. We recently in the United States had a president who was very focused on winning. We're going to get tired of winning. And believe me, I got tired of that kind of winning <laughs> long ago. But I still am left with this nagging suspicion that to fully encompass the well-being of the world, we have to figure what is going to be able to make future history exist. That is to say, if I'm in control of the situation and I can stop you and I can enhance that and I can send that one off to hell, that it's very important to know where that power lies, where that determinancy lies. And one of the thoughts that I had was that I had been raised to believe that it's not most important whether you win or lose, it's how you play the game. And I have a feeling all three of us are part of that. But there's part of me which also says, well, if I played fair, but all of my race got killed or all of my species got killed, I'm not sure that the playing fair was the right measure to use for that. So jump in and convince me that I'm, I'm really deluded. I'm missing an important point. You raise really, really big, profound issues and questions there in going to this question mark. And of course, you know, on the day-to-day -day basis, we know that the, this is what the Democratic Party is dealing with when we're now looking at a major party in the United States that has explicitly stated, basically, that they are not interested in playing fair. They're interested in um, cheating. Republican Party, um, right. Exactly, exactly. The Republican Party has stated they're, they're prepared to cheat just to create ultimately an authoritarian state if necessary in this country. So this is a very, very serious risk. And it is, it's easily tempting when we look at any of these situations, just like you say, if there's an indigenous group under attack from this dominant economic system and people getting killed right now in the Amazon from people coming in illegally to cut wood down and to set fires to turn the Amazon basically into pasture land. 
and indigenous people trying to protect that and just getting murdered and without any kind of punishment. And it's very easy to say, we've got to do everything to stand up against these forces for bad, even if it means getting involved in violence to protect what is right or um, sort of breaking down those basic rules, those fundamental ethics. But I feel strongly that it is absolutely fundamentally crucial to always come from the point of core strong ethical system, which always, in my view, has to include nonviolence as a fundamental within it. And it's very much in the lineage, this kind of thinking of people like Martin Luther King or Gandhi, this profound philosophy of nonviolence, which is not basically just a matter of nonviolence as if one little element, but an underlying philosophy, which basically says that even if you do engage in this in some battle against what you perceive as bad, that you try to win that battle through using tactics of whether it's violence or cheating or immoral tactics or whatever they might be, you kid yourself and think that, well, this is the end justifies the means. But what you miss is that actually the means is really what becomes the end, which then becomes the next means to the next unfolding flow of history. So any group that actually uses ultimately unethical techniques to win a battle, they're not going to suddenly say, okay, we'll stop doing those bad things now and we'll turn towards what's positive. The message that they receive among themselves and they send to others is that those are the kind of techniques that ultimately win, which becomes self-reinforcing. So we have to lead from a place of connection, from a place ultimately of love. Um, in order to really, truly break down those barriers that are so destructive in the world today, in my view. You got thoughts about that, Barney? I certainly agree. And I think that that importance of connection and importance of love, it, it's interesting how much in the conventional explanations, uh, religion and spirituality, that plays a big role. And of course, religion doesn't necessarily, religions today, the major religions have not followed the preachings of the original teachings, but the importance of love and helpfulness to others are in all of the major religions in, in their documents. And I think that, you know, going back to the issue of human nature, so often we focus on the bad things that people do, even today, it's hard not to. And I'm not denying that there's a real capacity for human evil and horrible behavior, but we need to really acknowledge specific instances of real charity. I'm thinking of when I was in India in a really poor area, the women I was working with took up a collection of money, and these are women who had very, very little money, but they took up a collection for other people they would never meet who had suffered in the tsunami, India and Southeast Asia. There are so many things like that, of course, that we know that we could cite the humans today doing things that are very, very touching and very, very compassionate, and yet we easily overlook those. And again, it's not to say that we don't do horrible things, but I think it's really important not to become so cynical that we say, well, humans can never act in a benevolent way, because if we say that, then we relegate ourselves to inaction and just a sense of giving up on making society better and more compassionate place. 
And just to follow on from what you're saying, Marty, I agree with everything that you're just putting out there. And I do think it's important to realize that when we talk about that notion of leading with love, that doesn't mean, oh, you don't have to engage in political struggles. You don't have to engage in fighting to protect what is left of the natural world against the depredations going on and all that stuff. What it means is that we have to recognize the bad that's being done and act actually sometimes ferociously act out of our love for what is getting hurt or what is getting destroyed. But at the same time, never othering those people who are the ones causing this destruction. We can see what they're doing. We can see their harm. And I'm not saying we should necessarily compromise with those people. We really have to stand up for what is right. But at the same time, to never lose the recognition that every one of those people was once a little infant looking for love and probably didn't get that love. And whatever hate they're espousing right now, whatever anger they're putting out there, whatever violence they're expressing, we can assume, and we can be pretty sure we're right, that internally, they are actually living those same kind of experiences within themselves. They're putting that same hate and anger and aggression towards their own being. And so they themselves are suffering greatly. And once we can recognize that and build the bridges to those people, then that offers us an opportunity not to just win one battle until so they'll regroup and come back to fight the next battle and you really don't get anywhere, but to actually dissolve some of those barriers that are causing the problems in the first place. You know, I knew Jeremy back in 2018 when I first interviewed you about the patterning instinct. I knew after I spoke to you that there was more conversation to come. And in 2019, when I interviewed you, Martin Shanehals, I knew that this was a conversation that was going to be fruitful and deep. Before we got on the air, I joked that we should talk for 12 hours. And I do feel that that would start to give it some of the respect that this time together deserves, the depth of the ideas. But Norton Spirit Radio programs and Spirit in Action particularly is only 55 minutes long. So there will be some bonus excerpts on my website. We're so fortunate to have had here today, Jeremy Lent. He's written two books that I've read one of them, and I'm going to finish the next one. And in a month down the road, I'll be speaking with Jeremy again about his new book, The Web of Meaning, Integrating Science and Traditional Wisdom. I interviewed him three years ago about the patterning instinct, a cultural history of humanity, search for meeting. Find him at jeremylent.com, the links on nordenspiritradio.org. And I'm also so very thankful to have back Martin Shanehals. I interviewed him about his book, Work, Love, and Learning in Utopia, Equality Reimagined, a couple years ago. And I'm so thankful that both of you came back. I've got links to both of them on nordenspiritradio.org. Thank you both for preparing the path forward. I'm pretty sure that we can't do anything if we can't conceive of it. And you are help us put together the mind, the heart, and the spirit ready to see that new world. Thank you for both doing this. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for getting us together, Mark. This is what it's all about. Folks, links, including bonus excerpts that I'll have to cut out to fit in the broadcast, those will all be on nordenspiritradio.org. Join us next week for Spirit in Action. The theme music for this program is Turning of the World, performed by Sarah Thompson. Check out all things Spirit in Action on northernspiritradio.org. 
guests, links, stations, and a place for your feedback, suggestions, and support. Thanks for listening. I'm Mark Helpsmeet, and I hope you find deep roots to support you to grow steadily toward the light. This is Spirit in Action. With every voice, with every song, we will move this world along, and our lives will feel the echo.